We welcome once again James Grant to our pulpit as he finishes up seven weeks in First Thessalonians. Thank you so much for this uh, cohesive message, and we look forward to hearing God's word again. Thank you. It has been a delight to be with you for the past seven weeks. Uh, thankful for, well, not just that, but the time uh, last year as well that we were here. We have enjoyed our time here at your congregation uh, at Grace Community and are very thankful for your path forward that the Lord has provided in that way. We're going to wrap up our series with an overview of the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. And so in your uh, liturgy, in your order of service on page 12, there are three separate readings These readings cover the first few verses, a middle section where Paul Paul pauses to give thanks to God, and then a concluding section, uh, a concluding benediction of Paul's letter. So from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then in conclusion, chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body Be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you at this time to ask that you would send us your spirit to open our hearts and our minds. Lord, as we reflect upon this letter... And and Paul's way of dealing with his church, the churches that he founded with us, we pray that our minds and hearts would be open to the transformation you would call us toward. This can't happen without your grace. And so we would ask that your spirit of grace would come at this time and make us receptive. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to pause and think for a moment as we uh, begin this by thinking about how you interpret your experiences. Now, to be more precise, what I want you to do is think about what goes in your head when you make, goes on in your head when you make a mistake. That's usually the best way into your soul is when you make a mistake and what story gets told in your head. I'll give you an example. This morning, I'm driving to church, and we come along 385, and I'm supposed to get off at Houston Levee, and my my brain went into autopilot because I thought I was going to work or school or whatever, and I passed the exit, and I thought, dear Lord, I'm going to be late on this last Sunday. 
And, and my mind started to go down this path of what that would look like, what that would mean. Now, that's all. I, I wasn't close to being late. But for some reason, my mind kicked off in that direction. That's what I'm talking about. When you have an experience like that, when your mind kicks off in a direction, what you say to yourself when an event like that happens, sometimes you beat yourself up and, and, and sometimes you have this voice in your head about how wrong you are, how many times you make a mistake. Sometimes the voice in your head is about how unloved you are, how people don't love you and appreciate you. Sometimes the voice in your head is a voice of worthlessness and shame. I'm astounded at how even though we have the right theology in our head, there are voices that speak to us that are the opposite of what we say we believe. Because we say we believe God's accepted us and God loves us, and yet that's not what goes on in our head sometimes. I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul understood this. And that when Paul writes his letters, part of what he's doing for us is helping us reframe our stories. Because every single one of us lives out of a story. And sometimes that story was formed very early in a childhood experience. Maybe your childhood was really good and you were loved. And so you have a great deal of confidence sometimes when something happens. Or maybe it didn't go so well. And when a problem comes up, you beat yourself up internally. And it could be a small thing, like leaving something off the grocery list. And you think, why do I do this over and over? What is happening at that moment is your thought process, the voice in your head is going against the gospel story. You are competing against the story God has brought you into. And I think this is an important question for us to think about and reflect on because we all live our life and go through our experiences and then we try to understand them and we try to interpret them. And when Paul writes a letter to a church, Paul's letters are about helping this congregation alter their patterns of behavior. He is writing to help them alter their patterns of thought. It's what we call spiritual formation. He's not just writing so that they can go, oh, I believe God's in control of everything. He's writing so that that thought, that doctrine, that belief can seep down into your heart and it really becomes what you believe and how you live. So Paul is about the process of helping these Thessalonians, these Thessalonian Christians, reframe their story. This is what Paul does in all his letters. Just think about it for a moment as we come to look at this whole book. In the story in Acts 17, when Paul establishes this church, there was a group of Christians that were thrown into jail. One was named in Acts 17. His name was Jason. Now think about this. If you were thrown into jail, that's a bad thing generally. Right? I mean, you probably broke the law. It's probably not a good thing. Paul takes that experience and says, it's okay. I expect this to be the suffering when you come to faith in Christ. 
He completely reinterprets Jason getting thrown in jail. And he says, you are living the crucified life in this. So Paul, when he comes to write his letters, is looking at their experiences and looking at their story and trying to press upon them that they need to reframe how they view their life. The way we're going to see this in 1 Thessalonians is in the threefold way Paul outlines in verses uh, 2 and 3. When Paul begins this letter and his prayer to give thanks for these people, he says in verse 3 that he remembers before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope. I believe that Paul's being very intentional with those three virtues, and in fact, the ordering of those three in this book. If you are familiar with other passages, there's five or six other passages in the New Testament where Paul uses this triad, this threefold group. You're probably most familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now faith, hope, and love abide, and the greatest of these is love. But twice in Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul mentions these three. He mentions them in Romans 5. He mentions them in Colossians 1. He mentions them in Galatians 5. That's kind of overwhelming that these three virtues constantly get mentioned by Paul in various ways. This was so important to the church that throughout the years of the church, at least from Augustine to Martin Luther... These three virtues also helped Christians read Scripture. When Christians read Scripture, not only did they try to understand what does this text mean, but they also asked three other questions. What does this text call us to believe, which is faith? What does this text call us to do, which is love? And what does this text call us to anticipate, which is hope? Faith, love, and hope became an interpretive grid for the scriptures. And in the same way, they became an interpretive grid for your life story. And so I believe that we can take a look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. In fact, I think we can do this through most of his letters and structure it by looking at faith, love, and hope. So generally, what we're going to see this morning is chapter one is about the initial moment of their faith. Now, that doesn't mean you you believe and then you go on and leave faith behind. Faith, hope, and love are constantly at work in your life, right? So don't, don't set a strong category where you're like, oh, I have faith, now I'm in the love stage, and now I'm in the hope stage. That's not what I'm talking about. This is just the way Paul describes this for us. The first chapter is about faith. Their faith at the beginning. Chapters 2, 3, and 4, at least to chapter 4, verse 12, is about love. Chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 12, is about the labor of love. And then chapter 4, verse 13, all the way to the end of the book, is about hope. So as we look at this, what I'm going to try to highlight is the way Paul interweaves the gospel story with their story using this threefold aspect of faith, love, and hope. So in chapter one, Paul begins 
with their faith. Faith is a trust, a belief. It has both a cognitive dimension, which means you believe something intellectually, but it has a relational and emotional dimension too where you trust it, where you trust what's being said. Faith is a posture of surrender to God. Paul describes it at the end of chapter 1 by saying in verse um, 9 and 10 that they turned from Turn to God, the end of verse 9, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's faith. A turning away from prior commitments, the idols of that world, to the living and true God. So there are several things that you need to know as faith gets established, Paul says. Several ways you need to interpret your life as faith comes to you. The first thing is that God has now connected you to a bigger story. This is no longer just your story. This is a story of God's kingdom. Paul mentions it in chapter 2, verse 12, as God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You have been brought into a bigger story, a story that encompasses the world, a story that encompasses the cosmos, according to Scripture, that All of creation is moving towards a goal. In the first few verses, Paul highlights this by describing them as the church. That's the way the story unfolds here with us in a church, in a a community of people who are church means called out. People who are called out so that they can embrace this story. A story that's full of grace and peace. This story that you're part of, according to Paul, is not your own doing. That's the second thing he highlights as you get into verse 4. He says, brothers, you are loved by God. He has chosen you. This story that you're part of, the reason you're sitting here in this church this morning, listening to a sermon, singing a hymn, is not your doing. It's grace. You're part of this story because God determined to choose you and call you into this story. He determined to love you first because you didn't love him. And so Paul begins this relationship with these Thessalonians in this letter by highlighting for them that this is not your own doing. You can let go of that that need for control because God has loved you and called you. Not only has he loved you and called you, but he's given you his spirit in verse 5. He says, the gospel came to them not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. This story that you're part of is a work of God that's at work that's drawing us all together into this image Paul uses in other letters of the body of Christ. Where we're all finding the right place in the story. But as any good story... There's a villain. There are obstacles. There's a problem. The most obvious problem in this letter and the most obvious problem in life at at which all other problems flow from is pain and suffering. It's affliction. It's the problem living in this world east of Eden. It is the pain that you experience in this life. Notice what Paul says here uh, as he moves to this 
uh, problem in verse 6. He said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul puts both of those together, affliction and joy. Now notice, this is the first step, and we're going to see this again when when I shift to chapters 2, 3, and 4 with love. But this notion of affliction, suffering, and pain is the fundamental thing you have to deal with to grow. You have to learn how to interpret it. Whenever you are afflicted with a sickness... Does your mind go, what have I done, God, to cause this? Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that whenever I'm hurting in pain and think, what did I do to cause this? That's a normal human reaction to pain. And, And sadly enough, a lot of us may have grown up in a church with a preacher who beat people up By saying, if you were suffering or if something was wrong in your life, you were out of the will of God. How that ever became part of the Christian vocabulary of America is beyond me. When Paul says, you should expect affliction. And so Paul, notice how Paul reframes this for them. He says, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. They are imitating Paul, who's imitating the Lord. And the imitation of the Lord that Paul's talking about here, and he does it again in a few moments, we'll look at this again, is the pattern of the cross. That's what he calls you to imitate. And somehow we try to get around the affliction. But Paul here says that that affliction produced an example to the other believers. There is a theology of affliction and suffering contained in this book, in fact, contained in all Paul's writings. And he's trying to do something. I was reading a few weeks ago about the way a cognitive behavior, behavioral therapists will try to use different tools to help people change addictive patterns of behavior. There's actually a term in that world called story editing. Go figure. Where they try to have conversations with their clients to help them edit their stories. Because your reactions to things in this world are flowing out of a core story. And that core story, those motivations are forming beliefs that are not the beliefs of scripture. They are lies that you believe. And then those lies produce emotions and behaviors. It's how we all live. Paul is trying to story edit for them here and help them see that their affliction is part of the gospel story. Now, imagine how your life would be different if you started viewing your affliction and suffering as part of the work of God that conforms you to the image of Christ and Christ and his cross. It's a completely different way to see the story. So that's how their faith starts. Paul is trying to get them to embrace a new story. As we move into chapter two, we're going to move into the topic of love. Now, of course, Paul's still going to say things about the origins of their faith and encourage their faith because according to Paul in Galatians, faith works through love. Your faith finds expression 
through acts of love. And so in Paul's case, love is not, first of all, an emotional feeling. Love is a conformity to the pattern of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That love from God is an action. And the love that Christ shows us is a self-giving, sacrificial love upon the cross. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ who loved me and he gave himself for me. That's the action of sacrificial love. According to Paul in Corinthians, love does not insist on its own way. Instead, love seeks the welfare of others and builds them up. Love is a gift of yourself for someone else. That is faith in action. Love involves two things. If that pattern, and and I could show you this in all of his letters. For example, Philippians 2. We won't turn there, but Philippians 2 is an example of this story that Paul tells. Love involves two things. Number one, denying your self-interest. It's the first step in love, in true love. It's denying yourself. Secondly, it is seeking the good of others. That's what crucified love looks like. That's why the cross is the central story. And I imagine here in the announcement from the search committee, there was a whole lot of that kind of sacrificial love and give and take that took place in the process of this. That's how life works. That's why we're called together in a church. And Paul wants them to see that this is the pattern of their life. The the great expression of this comes in chapter 2, verse 14. It's an echo of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 6, Look at chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things. And then he goes on to describe what they did to Jesus. So the pattern in 1 Thessalonians two fourteen is that you've become an imitator. And you're not just imitating Paul because Paul is some successful Christian and has all the things right. You imitate Paul, and this is how Paul says it over and over, you imitate me when I imitate Jesus. If I'm not imitating Jesus, I've missed the boat. And so Paul says, you imitate those who are imitating Jesus. And that imitation of Jesus is, first of all, this sacrificial love. So here's how it unfolds. After beginning the description in chapter one of their faith and what kind of story they're now part of, Paul wants them to learn how to love. Paul wants them to reframe their story so they can love properly. He wants them to develop a new pattern of living. And so Paul starts off by discussing his ministry in chapter two. And in discussing his ministry and explaining to them what he did, All of chapter 2 overflows with Paul's sacrificial love. If you read through chapter 2, everything there was for their sake. Listen to his words. Verse 1 of chapter 2. I want you to know that our coming to you is not in vain. 
but we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. But we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. You see the suffering note there in his ministry? I am coming to give you the gospel in spite of this suffering. He says in verse 3, our appeal does not spring from error and impurity. I'm not trying to deceive you. We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests the hearts. We're not coming with words of flattery. God is our witness. We don't seek glory from you, though we could have made demands. What we are doing, verse 7, is we're gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, right, but our own selves. That's the mark of a pastor who comes not only to share the gospel in word, but to share his self, to pour himself out like a drink offering, as Paul says in other passages. And so over and over, Paul goes on and highlights that emphasis. And then as he unfolds that, when he gets to verse 13, he highlights the word of God. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, how does that reframe their story? You imagine these Christians who are in Thessalonica, who know very, who know nothing perhaps about Jesus. Paul comes, he preaches the gospel to them, he shares this with them, he starts telling them about the word of God in the Old Testament and what he's instructing them with. And then all of a sudden, you have words in front of you that help you understand the way life goes. You have a story that tells you where this issue of sin came from. You have a host of things that you didn't have before. We're so used to the Bible that we can't comprehend what it would do to our life if we didn't know anything about it and it intruded into our story. That's what Paul's doing for them. And they accepted that as the word of God and started reconfiguring the way they viewed this world. And so then Paul, as he goes on to describe this story, he goes on to describe his love for them when in verse 17, he was torn away from them for a little while and Satan hindered him from coming back. So when you get to chapter three, what does Paul do? He sacrificially sends Timothy. That act of sending Timothy, Paul says in chapter three, verse one, when, when he could bear it no longer, he was willing to be left behind at Athens alone and sent Timothy, his brother, his son in the faith, his gospel co-worker to establish and exhort their faith. That's how much he loves them. He's willing to make a sacrificial choice of sending Timothy back so that, notice verse 3 of chapter 3, here's the purpose, that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul knows that it is the suffering and affliction and loss of life that causes you to move away. So he sends Timothy back in an act of sacrificial love so that they can understand why the gospel goes this way. And Paul can remind them, when you believe on Jesus, you sign up for this. Pick up your cross and follow me. And the picking up of that cross could involve persecution as they experienced in Thessalonica. It may involve suffering in a way you didn't expect. It could involve any host of trials. 
I'm fascinated that Paul actually says in the very next sentence in in verse three, when he says that he sent Timothy so that no one may be moved by these affliction. Did you keep reading when I stopped? For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Do you know that God has destined us to go through suffering? I don't, I don't fully understand why. In the midst of it, it's so painful and so difficult. But on the other side of it, you learn lessons you would have never known otherwise. And so Paul has to remind these Christians every time they go in the midst of suffering again to remember back to what God taught them last time and not be moved to press on. And so this recounts Paul's sacrificial love. And that sacrificial love has its way of working itself out in the life of the church too. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, the church is called to love one another, to sacrificially give to one another as Paul had, to love God and to love those who are even outside the community. And that lends us to the final section as we wrap this up, and that's the statement of hope. So Paul has highlighted, first of all, their work of faith, how they came to the gospel and helped them understand what that meant. He then, in the course of the middle of the book, has highlighted their labor of love, both his and theirs. And now he concludes the book with hope. Because when you get to chapter 4, verse 13, you move into this long section where he talks about the coming of Jesus. Now, here's the reason why I think it's there like this. Because any good story has to have a climax. A story has a beginning that you understand properly. It has a conflict. It has a growth stage of the character. And then you have a resolution. The story that you're all part of is moving towards a resolution. That's why Paul tells them, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died. That you may not grieve as others who have no, what? Hope. You have hope for the future. Your lifespan is a small dot on the timeline. But the story that you're part of is much bigger. And so Paul wants them to understand that this is all moving somewhere, that you're part of a bigger story, that your life isn't over when you die. Some of the best is yet to come, Paul says. And so he's instructing them on how to hold that hope. Hope is the future tense of faith. It's how Hebrews 11, I think, describes faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not yet embraced. Hope is that future tense of the Christian faith. And so most of your struggles with your mistakes, with your thought processes, with the things that you tell yourself that are not gospel things, that derail your story and then make you feel shameful and guilty and all the other things, most of those things are because there's something in the future you're afraid is going to get you. Which is why in Paul's letters over and over, he ends them with this note of hope. Because you need to have confidence 
that this story ends well. And if it's just this life, you've all had enough experiences to know that sometimes it doesn't end the way you want it to. But the end of this life is not the end of the story. This story ends in the book of Revelation with the unveiling of the new heavens and the new earth. And and, and the Apostle John describes it in Revelation in his way because they use scrolls that when Jesus comes back, the sky will be rolled back like a scroll. What I think John envisioned is what science is witnessing to us now is that there's another dimension all around us that we Christians have called heaven for a long time. And when Jesus comes back, when we sing those hymns like he'll split the eastern sky, space and time are going to come apart and be enveloped by the new heavens and new earth. That's the story you're moving towards. That's the hope you can have in the gospel. Because when he comes back, he will make all things right. All the stories you live will be wrapped up into the beauty of Christ. That's what Paul is driving towards in this book. It's what he's driving towards in all of his letters. And I hope and pray as we come to the end of this that you can embrace what he says here at the end of the book. Now may the God of peace himself, this is chapter 5 verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Help you continue to grow in this story. And may your whole, notice how he ties it all together. It's not just your head. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus, that great hope. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's why we call this message the gospel. Because that's really good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that we have learned much from, from the Apostle Paul as he has instructed us concerning our life. And we pray that as we wrap this up, that we will not only believe what we've seen and believe what's been said, but that that belief will seep down into our hearts. And as those different thoughts come to our minds that are not gospel-oriented thoughts, that we would be able to shift gears and preach to ourselves this good news as we continue to grow in the hope that we wait for when Jesus returns. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.